Bible to Acts chapter number 9. We are concluding this morning a, a short series that we've been in. I've entitled it, Can God? We've looked at a few different questions uh, that have followed up with that. Uh, can God? Can God really keep you saved? Can God save your loved ones last week? Tonight, or today rather, we're looking at this, this, concluding, uh, this concluding topic is, can God use your life? I think a lot of Christians struggle with that. They hold on to things in their past, and they think that because, uh, because of things that have gone on in their past that God can't use them. Maybe things that's going on right now that God can't use them. We're going to look at those questions today, and we're going to look at a man who, man, if ever there was somebody who uh, we'd say, well, I don't think God's ever going to be able to use that guy. We're going to look at him today. Every time I look at the Apostle Paul's life, where we come especially to the story of his conversion, it ought to remind us of how amazing God's grace is. What a what a character this guy was before he was saved. He was so different after he was saved that God changed his name, didn't he? He was Saul. When we first meet him, he's Saul, and he's called Saul from this city of Tarsus. But God takes him and saves him by grace through faith, and he just does such a, a transformative work in his life that Paul becomes perhaps the greatest missionary in the history of the New Testament church. He becomes God's man to the Gentiles. You and I have the gospel today, largely in part, humanly speaking, because of the man that we're talking about, the Apostle Paul. The other apostles were content to stay in Jerusalem and minister to Jews and share the gospel uh, with those stuck in the trappings of Judaism. Paul, though, the Bible says he was specifically chosen to go to the Gentiles. And if God can use a guy like Saul of Tarsus... I want you to be encouraged today. God can use anyone. That includes you in a great way. I think he was such a, an unlikely candidate for the service that he was, he was called to. Uh, he was feared and hated by the Christians. And you know his testimony if you're familiar with him at all. Saul did everything he could do to destroy the name of Jesus Christ. If it was attached to Jesus, Paul was absolutely against it. But God reached down to him and found Saul right where he was. You remember the Damascus Road story that we're going to read part of that today. And he, he changed this man and literally, I'm not, I'm not speaking metaphorically or figuratively this morning, literally, Paul changed the course of the world by a surrendered life to God. It's an amazing thing that God did through him. Here's my opening statement for you this morning. Often when we look at Paul, we think of some kind of super saint and that God could never use us as he did Paul. Some even wonder if God can use them at all. As I said a moment ago, perhaps we feel unworthy to be used of the Lord in his work, but our, our look at Paul today is going to remind us that Jesus can and will use you if you'll just surrender your life to him. You know the key to Paul was? The key to Paul's ministry and his impact on this world was he was surrendered to whatever God wanted him to do. And, and if you wrote that statement down right there, underline and circle and highlight the word whatever. Whatever God gave Paul to do as a convert 
Paul said, okay, that's, that's what we'll do. So maybe you're here today and you're wondering, and we talk about Christians in the Bible all the time and some big biblical heroes, and you're wondering, can God really use me? And the answer is, yes, he can. In fact, that's been the answer to every question we've asked in this short series so far. Yes, God can do that. I'd like to look at this morning some obstacles that you or I might use as a, as a reason that God can't use us in some great way. Obstacles, various obstacles in, in our lives, obstacles certainly in, in Paul's life or Saul's life as we first meet him. But the truth is that God, God's grace absolutely overwhelms the obstacles that come up. And his ability to use people is fascinating. Just think about, we won't name them all. We're going to name a few as we make our way through this text today. But just think of, of a few people that you might know in the scriptures that were unlikely to be used by God. When you first met them, let's say, let's say that there was a person in the Bible and when you read the first one or two or maybe three verses that introduces you to them, you don't know if this guy's going to be a hero or a villain in the story. And all of a sudden, he or she ends up being a great Bible hero. What does that? God's grace overcoming those obstacles that you first saw in that person's life. Certainly, we find that in the Apostle Paul. Let's, let's read part of this, his testimony. Acts chapter 9, look at verse number 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, this way being Christianity, faith in Christ, if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told, uh, it shall be told thee what thou must do. Drop down to verse number 9. And he was three days without sight, neither did eat or drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him... Said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here. Uh, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. I'll be just pause here. I, I just love the conversation that takes place here after, don't you? Because God knows who he's talking about, Saul of Tarsus, and so does Ananias. And Ananias runs a check on God right here, doesn't he? Look at that verse. Then Ananias answered, Lord, can you hear the gulp in his voice? Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem and here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, 
For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Mark that word, suffer. God didn't say, I'm going to show him the great things he's going to do for my name's sake. He said, I'm going to let, I'm going to let Saul know ahead of time what great things he will suffer for my sake. And you know, you know his story, don't you? Knowing what he was going to suffer, he still obediently followed Jesus Christ. That's what I'm saying when I said a moment ago, the key to Paul's great ministry that impacted the world, uh, that impacted the world is, is based on the fact that he surrendered himself to do whatever it was God gave him to do. That's an amazing, that's an amazing story. Well, while we make our way through there, you're learning about Saul. You're learning about what he's about. You're seeing... Uh, what his future is going to be. You're seeing how he's being received here at the very beginning by by Christians. Do you see any obstacles that are going to have to be overcome in order for God to use Saul? Well, this passage is full of them. And Paul, in his writings later, he's going to confess even more that had to be overcome. Let's pause and pray and ask God to help us today because here's what I'm, here's what I'm hoping in our, in our church family. I'm hoping that those of you who are maybe a little hesitant about getting involved in ministries, I'm hoping you'll see this morning, you don't have an obstacle in your life that God's grace and power cannot overcome in order to use you in a great way. You might be holding back a little bit. You're content to sit. You're content to observe. You'll open the hymnal when Brother Daniel sings, but maybe you've got a ministry you're supposed to be involved in But there's obstacles in front of you and you're saying, I just don't know if I can do that because of fill in the blank. Let's let's look at this thought today. Can God use your life? Let's see what the Bible says about Saul and then ask yourself this. If God can really overcome these obstacles in Saul's life, is God able to overcome those obstacles for me as well? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for putting this man's testimony in here. It's good for us to know who he was before he was saved, what he was doing when you called him. And then we see the tremendous work that you did through Paul throughout his ministry. And Lord, I pray that today, when we consider what you'd like to do with us, help us not to be the obstacle. Help an an unwilling heart not to be the reason we don't allow you to work through us. Lord, I pray for every member of Faith Baptist Church. May we find the the purpose for which you planted us in this church family. And God, I pray that through your power and through your grace that we would accomplish those things through the church here in our community or in our world that you've given us to do. And I pray that we would know your, your continued hand of blessing here. Thank you for the unity we have at Faith Baptist Church. We're never going to take that for granted. And we ask, Lord, that as we we look at Paul's life today and see what great work of grace you did in him, we're asking you to do that in us as well. We pray in your name. Amen. I'd like to look at at, uh, Paul's life, use it as a parallel for our lives, and then see if God can't use us. All right? Let's start with this first thought. Here it is. Your past condition is no obstacle. And the the conclusion of that sentence is to God's grace. Your past condition is no obstacle 
to God's grace. It says in verse number one that Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he sought out these warrants that he could get to take and arrest Christians wherever he found them. And his whole plan was to put people to death, not just to imprison them. Would you hold your finger here and turn to Acts chapter number 22? And look what the scripture says in verse number 4. Acts chapter 22 and verse 4. And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. I put them in prison, held them there until they could be put to death. Chapter 26 and verse number 10. Paul's talking again. He said, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. I testified in their trials so that they would be put to death. That is Saul of Tarsus. He wasn't, don't don't mistake this, oftentimes we look at this passage of scripture in Acts 9, and we forget what Paul says elsewhere. It was not just his goal to put Christians just like you and me into prison. That was just the holding tank for them. His goal was to see them executed. He had in his heart to do away with anything that had to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, there's some things about Paul's past revealed there. Paul said, by his words, I was a murderer. He talks about how he rebelled against the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Jews may have looked at Paul and envied his uh, religious appearance on the outside, but inside he was as wicked as any man to ever walk the earth. Paul was a wicked man. My point is today that your past is no obstacle to the grace of God. Paul says, you want to talk about a past? I'll tell you about my past. Acts 7.58, he gave consent to Stephen's murder, it says. But all of his wickedness and all of his evil-hearted acts, none of those things were obstacles to the saving power of God's grace. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that there's nothing in my past or your past that cannot be overcome by God's grace. And I'll remind you today, I'll reassure you today, your past is no obstacle to the grace and the power of God. Pastor, you just don't know about my past. Well, let's line it up to Paul's. How many people have you murdered? Not randomly. How many people have you sought out because they were believers in Jesus Christ and carried that arrest all the way to execution? How many, how many do you have in your past? Paul's a testimony that your past, my past, even his past is no obstacle to God. The problem is that there are records of our past, aren't there? There are, three, there, are, there are three places where the record of your past exists today. And here's where we struggle with that, isn't it? Pastor, you just don't know what's in my past. We have these records. First, there's the record that you carry in your mind. You remember what you were before Christ 
before Christ saved you. I was saved on January 19th, 1977. I wasn't yet 11 years old. But some of you, some of you were involved in some pretty serious sins because you got saved later in an adult. There were things that there were things that you just can't get over. And you're thinking, I, yeah, you got saved when you were 10 and a half years old, Mark. So what was there for God to forgive? A sin nature that was worth Calvary, even as a 10 and a half year old boy. But maybe there are things in your past. You've got a record in your mind that you're carrying. Second, there's a record, there's a record of your past carrying by those who knew you before you were saved. How many of you in here, let me just ask you a question. How many of you in here were saved after you were 20 years old? You got saved after you were 20 years old. Okay, good. That's, pretty, that's a pretty good number of people. Now, there's a group of people out there that know what you were before you got saved, aren't there? There's the record that you carry in your mind. There's the record that they know. They see you going to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night and gathering for a Bible study on Wednesday night and maybe going out with the men or the women for fellowship. They're like, yeah, but I knew him or I knew her before. There's that group of people. And then there's the record that Satan carries. Satan is not omniscient, but he's pretty smart. He will take the record that he has of your pre-salvation past and he will beat you up with it and beat me up with it every opportunity he gets, won't he? He loves, he loves guilt. Did you know God will never make you feel guilty? God will make you feel convicted. There's two different things and there's two different motives. Satan loves to abuse you with guilt. Don't let him. Because the, the truth is, look at Paul's life, the truth is that your past condition is no obstacle to the grace and power of God. If he wants to use you, God can use you. All he's looking for is a surrendered heart. So you have those three records, what you carry in your memory, what your friends and family carry if they knew you before you were saved, what Satan, what Satan carries around. All those things are remembered by those people. You know who doesn't remember all of that? God, your sins, if you're saved this morning, your sins have been forgotten by God. He has done away with them. In fact, he has forgotten our sinful past so much so there's an old gospel song called What Sins Are You Talking About? And it's the conversation between the the saved person and God where uh, God is saying, what sins are you talking about? You keep bringing these sins up. I don't know what you're talking about. And scripture is full of those conversations that, or or those passages rather that tell us that. We're not turning to all of them this morning, but Psalm 103, Isaiah 38, Micah chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 6. All of them contain passages that say your sin is no longer existent before God if you're his child. Isaiah 43, 25, this is God speaking. I... Even I am he that blotteth out thy transgression for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. If you're going to get a t-shirt, get that t-shirt. God says, I will not remember your sins. Jeremiah chapter 50 and verse 20. What a great prophecy this is. In those days and in that time, saith the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought for and there shall be none. And the sins of Judah, they shall not be found. 
For I will pardon them whom I reserve, whom I rescue, whom I save. 1 John 1.7 says, The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. You know, there are all kinds of people in the Bible that God used greatly after some pretty big failures. Abraham lied and committed adultery, yet God used him to father the nation of Israel. His grandson Jacob was a lying deceiver and a hypocrite, but God used him to father the 12 tribes. Moses was greatly used by God after committing murder. You know, a lot of times when we look at Moses, we forget he's got a criminal record, and that criminal record is murder. We forget about that. Simon Peter preached Pentecost after denying Jesus Christ. My, my point is, and there's a lot of others that could be named, but the point's made here, that the Lord can take those with great failures in their past and use them for his glory. Before you were saved or even since you've been saved, God can take those failures, wash them over in his grace, strengthen you with his power, and still accomplish his work through you. Your past condition is no obstacle to God's grace and power. Second, your present circumstances are no obstacle. Your present circumstances are no obstacle. What is Paul doing when we find him in Acts chapter number 9? Verse number 2, he's on his way to Damascus and he's going to target Christians. He is, we would say, he's not really living for the Lord in verse number 2. Can we agree on that? He's not living for the Lord. He desired of the high priest letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if they found any of this way Christianity, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And we know what his end goal is. Bring them to Jerusalem, put them on trial, execute them. Your present circumstances are no obstacle to God's grace. When he was saved, he was on his way to kill Christians. He was filled with hatred. He wanted nothing more than to destroy every person he could find that was following this Jesus from Nazareth. And despite what he was doing, God saved him. That's an amazing demonstration of God's grace. It doesn't matter what shape you're in right now. God can clean us up. He can heal us. And then he can use us. But that's the process. There's a, there's, a, uh, uh, there's a process to get us there. And with Paul, he had to be changed. So don't let your current level of education or your current financial status or your current level of faith be the obstacle that you use to say, well, God can't use me. The Lord meets us where we are. He changes what he wants to change in us to make us more like Christ. And then he puts us in his service where he wants us to be. The Bible, again, the Bible is full of these stories. I listed one, two, three, four of them here. First one, let's go back to Moses again. Well, we got Paul as an example already, but let's go to Moses. Moses was hiding from God in the desert when he came to that burning bush. Moses was not doing what God wanted him to do. He'd fled Egypt because of the murder. He's hiding out in the desert. When God finds him, he's he's living in fear. God meets him at the burning bush and calls him to his service. Then there's the demon. Here's a, 
if ever there's an example of God's ability to take one's present circumstance and overcome them, is it not the maniac of Gadara that we read about in Mark chapter number 5? I, I, I try to picture that in my mind, and I don't have, and some of our missionaries may have different stories here. I have no one to compare this guy to that I've met in my life. Can I remind you about him? This man is demon-possessed. He lives in a cemetery. He's got no clothes on whatsoever. And if anybody comes close to that cemetery, he terrorizes them. A group of men caught him and tried to bind him with chains, the Bible says, and he broke the chains. I have nobody in my life that I can compare this to. I'm pointing to him to say this. Your present circumstance is not bigger than God's grace. That man was in a mess. You remember that story. Jesus casts out those. He casts out those demons. And, and then all of a sudden, just like that, the change is so great. The Bible says he is found clothed and in his right mind and sitting at Jesus' feet. That's God's ability to overcome your present circumstance. I think of, uh, I think of those four lepers back in 2 Kings chapter 7. Do you remember the four lepers, the Syrians had come in and they had, they had uh, encompassed, surrounded the city of Samaria. That's the story, you remember the story that came up where the two women came to the king and, and they said, look, this lady told me last night if we'd eat her son last night, or my son last night, we'd eat her son tonight. You remember that story? These people are being starved out of that city to the point where they're boiling their babies and eating them. Do you remember those four lepers? That, I, I love that story of those four lepers. Here's four guys. They're outcasts. They've got a, they are condemned to death by the disease they have. But they're outcasts of society. And these four lepers look, well, they won't let us in the city over here, and they're starving to death. The Syrians over there, we know that the enemy that's surrounding our town, we know they have all the food we need. Let's just go ask them. Let's go ask them for some food. What's the worst thing that can happen? They'll say no, just like the people in our city said no. We, we still won't have any food. They get over there. Do you remember what happened? God had chased the, the Syrians out of that thing, and the Syrians vacated their camp. They fled their camp and left everything behind, not just food and wine, everything, wealth, livestock. They left it all back there. And those four, those four lepers, they started out just like you and I would do, well, let's sit down and start eating. And then one of them said, you remember, I, I like the way it put it, brethren, we do not well. And, it, and those four guys, those four lepers, those four dying men who had leprosy that could not be cured, they saved their whole city. God used them to save the city of Samaria. I'm saying your present circumstance isn't that bad. And yet God used them. I want you to think of a young lady, a beautiful young Jewish lady by the name of Esther, who's a slave in a foreign land that speaks a foreign language, and she's just a servant. Esther ends up being queen of the land and saves the nation of Israel from being slaughtered. What was her current circumstance, though? She's a slave girl. You see what I'm saying? Your present circumstance is not greater than the grace of God. My present circumstance can't be greater than the grace of God. God has this unique ability 
that if we'll surrender to him like he talks about in Romans chapter 12, if we'll just give our lives to him like a living sacrifice, he will prove through us what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It just requires us to to be willing. Those lepers had to be willing to go back to the people who shut them out and say, hey, there's food over here. Those people that had mistreated them, that had rejected them, they had to go back to them and say, there's food over here if you want to come eat. Esther had to be willing to serve people who had taken her country captive. All God's looking for is for someone to surrender. The third thing, not only your past condition, not your present circumstance, those things are no obstacle to God's grace. The third thing, your personal characteristics are no obstacle to God's grace. Who you are, your personality, your little quirks and your little traits that you have. Y'all are so good. You just sit there like on your face like, I don't have any quirks and traits, Pastor. And you're sitting there like, you got you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if I want to know what yours are, I'll ask your husband or wife. Those things that are in you and in me that are not all that nice, that are not all that social, God can, God can overcome those. In verses 11 through 16, you have this conversation between the Lord and Ananias. This is what other people thought about Saul of Tarsus. What we're talking about in this one, your personal characteristics, it's what other people think of you. And you're saying, God can't use me because I, I can't, I, I, this is how people see me. This is what goes on with me. How did Ananias see Saul of Tarsus as a murderous enemy to be avoided. When God says, I want you to go, Ananias, he's no different than you or me. Ananias says, wait a minute, are we talking about the same guy? Saul of Tarsus? Lord, he's coming to this city to persecute people like me, and you want me to go to him? Paul had these personal characteristics of what others thought about him. Do you remember when he went to Jerusalem? Barnabas had to go with him to sell the church at Jerusalem on this guy named Saul because they weren't going to take him. When you examine Paul's life, you learn that there were a lot of personal characteristics that presented a hindrance to him being a successful missionary. We won't turn to these, but if you'd like to write them down, you you can get the whole context of them. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 10. The people who didn't like Paul. Now, by this time when he writes the, the letter to the Corinthian church, he's Paul. The people who didn't like Paul and were his detractors, his accusers, this is what they said about Paul. His bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. That's not very, that's not very uh, edifying. That's not going to help your self-image. If somebody says, your bodily presence is weak and your speech is contemptible. In that same book, chapter 11, verse number 16, Paul says that he is perceived to be rude in speech. As educated as he was, Paul really didn't, he really didn't dress up his speech with a lot of eloquence and poetic flower, uh, flowery talk. Paul was just plain spoken. That's what it's meant there by rude in speech. Adam Clark said on that thing about rude in speech, he said this, The graces of the Greek tongue Paul appears not to have studied. Paul just, he was that guy who told it like it was. 
Now, he was educated. He was highly educated, possibly the most educated of the men that God chose to write the Bible. Very educated, but rude in speech. He was plain spoken. He studied not the graces of the Greek tongue. I like that. There were just mannerisms that he had that got on people's nerves. The way he spoke offended those who opposed him, and yet the Lord greatly used him. If we start comparing ourselves with others, Scripture says we're unwise to do that. Let's be honest. Many of us have personal characteristics that make us feel like we can't be used of God effectively. Remember that God takes what might be considered weaknesses and hindrances and flaws, and he uses us anyway. God excels at using the foolish and weak things of the world to confound the wise and the mighty. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 1.27. You can't help but think that Paul was even pointing some fingers at himself in that. He was smart but he could be offensive to people. He was abrasive at times. His personality was harsh, yet God greatly used him. Your personal characteristics are no obstacle for God. Again, examples, Paul. There there was something else about Paul, not only only that people saw his, his gruffness, but do you know, Paul, there's a good chance, I don't know that we can say adamantly this is true, there's a good chance he was nearly blind. There's a good chance that Paul was nearly blind. He says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 11, he says to those people, he said, look how large a letter I have written unto you. And Galatians is not that big of a letter as far as its length, not compared to First or Second Corinthians or the book of Hebrews. He says, look how large a letter. Look, look at my handwriting. You can tell. I don't, I don't know that Paul had good eyesight. In fact, I think he may have had bad eyesight because of the physical abuse that he took as a Christian. Surely his body bore scars. I can't help but think that Paul didn't walk standing upright. May have had a limp because of the the beatings with rods and stonings that he endured. Moses had a speech impediment. There were 11 disciples that Jesus called to follow him. They were relatively uneducated and unknown men. And yet the Bible says in the book of Acts that those men turned the world upside down. What what I'm saying is your personal characteristics, although you and I might be insecure about those things, God says that's not an obstacle to my grace. That's not an obstacle to my power. So your past condition... Your present circumstance, your personal characteristics, none of those things stand up against the grace and the power of God. He's able to overcome those and use us anyway. The last and fourth thing is this, your private concerns. Your private concerns are no obstacle to God. We have to leave the book of Acts to answer this one. So would you flip over to, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. Those personal characteristics we just talked about, that's what other people saw in Paul. Whether it was his personality traits or his physical infirmities that that kind of plagued him. But then there were those concerns that Paul had about himself. You know what, does that make sense to you? There's those things in us that others may not see it, but it's what's in my heart or what's in my mind or it's my perception of myself. 
those private concerns that you have are no obstacle to God. I think Paul privately battled some things in his life. I know Moses did. I think Paul also did. This particular passage that we're turning to, you know it well. It's that passage that talks about the thorn in his flesh. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter number 12, this is one of those private concerns that he had. I don't know if anybody knew about this thorn or not. They may have. There's some Bible writers, and I don't, I don't know if I agree with this, some people think it was a person. Now, you can relate to that, can't you? If I say, name a person, don't do this. Please do not say this out loud. But if I said, you name a person, it's a thorn in your flesh. It wouldn't take some of us very long to come up with that person. I don't know that that's what's being talked about here. I, I think this was something different than a person. may have been, but I think it was something different than a person. But look what Paul says in chapter 12 and verse number 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations... There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, my strength is made perfect in weakness. So God stops talking, and now Paul starts talking. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest Upon me. This is one of those private concerns that Paul had, his thorn in the flesh. I don't know what it was. I, I don't know. There are, like I said, there are a lot of guesses, but to him, it was something he wanted gone from his life. Can you relate to that? Is there something in your life or in your, your home or whatever? You have asked God to take it away. Just remove this thing. Three times Paul did this. Maybe you have a thorn like that. Something that you see is a hindrance to God using you. I do know this. This wasn't a sinfulness in Paul. I don't believe it was a temptation to sin. The purpose of this thorn is to keep Paul from becoming too impressed with himself because all of the books of the Bible that he wrote. That would he, that's what he's talking about in verse 7. Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. God has told me a lot of things and I've written these things down. And they, he didn't know it, but they were going to become the word of God. The preserved word of God. And Paul is saying, so I don't think more highly of myself than I should. I have this thorn in my flesh to remind me, hey, you're not all that much. And God has to do that to us. He's got to remind us we're not, we're not all that. He's all that, but we're not. So Paul has this thorn, and I don't think it was a sin or a temptation to sin because God doesn't do that to us. This is here to keep him from being prideful. And whatever that thorn was, Paul saw this as a personal and private weakness hindering him in the ministry. And he asked God three times, God, I could do so much more for you if you'd take this thorn away. Three times. You may have that thorn and you see it as a weakness and you see it as a reason that you can't serve, that God can't use you. And it's something that you've asked God 
to get rid of so that you could do it. Here's the thing. God doesn't need us to be strong and to be able to stand on our own two feet. God needs us to depend on him. God needs us to surrender to him. In fact, can I, can I put it like this? In one, in one way, God needs us to be weak so that we're completely dependent on him. Sometimes he has to make us very weak to be dependent on him. God is not looking for spiritual powerhouses, but for those who have nothing more than faith and a desire to serve God. That's what God's looking for. You see how God replied here, don't you, in verse number 9? God gently says, no. Paul says, would you take this away? And God gently says, no, I won't, without using the word no. That's a good, by the way, that's a good example for me. If you've got to deliver bad news to somebody, do it gently. Don't take pleasure in it. Did you notice that God never one time uses the word no in his reply to Paul? He just says this. Paul says, will you take this away? God says, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul was absol- all of a sudden, Paul was absolutely fine with that. He, he went right along with that. God's reply to Paul's request to remove it brought Paul to a great spiritual realization, and that's this. His weakness is what brought God's strength. Do you want God's power in your life? Do you want spiritual strength in your life? Then stop depending on yours. I have to stop depending on mine. Jesus made it very plain in in John chapter 15. He says, without me, ye can do nothing. And I have to stop depending on my power and my strength. And I will find myself like Paul saying, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It wasn't comfort Paul was seeking. Paul wanted to be effective in ministry. And God said, I'll make you effective in the service that I've called you to if you'll depend on me. And if I take that thorn away, Paul, I think you'll depend on you. So I'll leave it there, but I'll give you grace to overcome it. And Paul says, that sounds like a good plan, that the power of Christ may rest on me. That was his goal. His goal was not comfort. His goal was to have God's power. God often used weak people in a great way. Have you noticed that? Can I give you some more biblical illustrations of this truth so you don't sit there and think he's making this whole thing up? This is all through the scripture. Let me ask you a question. How many women can you name in the Bible that were barren that gave birth? They were barren. It's not that they just hadn't had children. The scripture is clear on this. They were barren. The Bible will say their womb was closed. I mean, they're barren. Unable to have children. But they had children. See that? God's able to take what we see as a weakness. It's no obstacle for God's grace and God's power. When's the first time you met Gideon? Gideon. 
the guy who's going to deliver Israel from the Midianites. When's the first time you met him? You met him when he's hiding behind a threshing, he's hiding behind a, a, a threshing wheel so he can keep his food and he's scared to death and he's quaking in his boots. That's the first time you met him. He's the general, God, he's the general you're going to use with 300 men to overthrow an army of tens of thousands. Gideon, that guy, your, your weakness and your infirmity is no obstacle for God's grace and God's power. When's the first time you met David? David's a kid who is so insignificant in his family that when Samuel came to town asking for his sons, Jesse didn't even think to call him. What's that going to do to a teenage boy's self-confidence? When's the first time you met Daniel? He was a young man who was a slave, right? All of these people throughout Scripture have these... They have these things in them and they have these things about them that are obstacles to keep God from being able to use them? No, not at all. God's grace is able to overcome all of these. May I get just personal with you? And I'm not picking out anybody and I'm not picking on anybody. Some of you battle depression. It's an ongoing battle with you. Some of you battle loneliness. Some of you have feelings of inferiority or guilt for things that God has long ago forgiven and forgotten. But they're ongoing battles with you. And you fight these battles privately. And at the back of your mind, this is the obstacle that you think God can't overcome. And I'm saying, yes, he can overcome that obstacle. His grace is bigger than that. Did you know that Charles, I think Dr. Manley mentioned this a a few weeks ago. Did you know Charles Haddon Spurgeon battled depression? Pastored thousands. His ministry is so extensive, and I said is, not was. It's so extensive that I think we have something like 8,000 of his sermons in print today. This is a man who pastored back in the 1800s, yet he battled depression. Moses appears to have a great problem with confidence. None of these things, though, were obstacles for God. He can take our weaknesses and he uses them, like 1 Corinthians 1 says, to confound the wise and confound the mighty. Here's the truth. God can take your life and work in you in such a way as to bring great glory to himself. The secret is found in one word, and that word is surrender. That's the key about all these people that we're talking about. Paul, Moses, Gideon, Esther, David, Daniel. All of these people that we've mentioned today, the key was they were surrendered to God. Did they struggle uh, with internal, internal struggles and insecurities and problems? Yes, they did. Did they have optimum circumstances in which they lived? No, they didn't. And yet, God greatly used them. Well, Pastor, the world in which we live today, the world in which you live today is not greater than the grace and the power of God. It's no obstacle. God can use us greatly. Can God use your life? Make that a personal question, not general to the church. 
Can God use your life? Yes, he absolutely can. But your life has to be God's to use. Now let's wrap this up. Your life has to be God's to use. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Let's close with four questions I'm going to ask you to answer in your heart. Here's the first question. Are you genuinely saved? Has there been a time when you have asked the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all that sin has brought into your life? You've asked him to be your savior. You weren't born into that state. It doesn't matter if you were raised in church. This was a conscientious decision that you made because you were convicted about your sin. Are you genuinely saved? I didn't ask if you were baptized. I didn't ask if you were a church member or if you tithe. Have you been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you totally his? Remember, I said your life has to be God's to use. The first step is, are you genuinely saved? Second, are you fully surrendered? Are you fully surrendered to Christ? What do you mean by that? This is, this is a, a simple illustration. Is there anything that you are not willing to do for Jesus? Don't be quick to say no. I want you to think that through. Is there anything that you're not willing to do for Jesus? That's what it means to be fully surrendered. Do you remember what Paul or what God said to Ananias about Saul? I'm going to show him the great things that he must suffer for my sake. Are you fully surrendered? Is there anything you're not willing to do for Jesus? Third question, are you completely available for his use? Are you completely available for his use? Put another way, is your life too cluttered so you have no time available to serve God? May I say this to you gently as your pastor, but may I say this to you? The reason some of you aren't more involved in church is because you're too involved in this world. The reason some of you are not involved in various ministries we have is because you're too involved in the things of the world. Ask yourself, are you completely available for his use? And then as a Christian, here's the final one. Here's the final question. Are you truly willing to be used by the Lord? Here's what Paul said. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If it takes me keeping this thorn in my flesh in order to do what God wants me to do, then I'm his. Are you truly willing to be used by the Lord? He does not force us to serve him. Now, he may make you wish you had served him. But he's not going to force you to serve him. We must be willing to be used by God. Now you have these four questions. Are you genuinely saved? Are you fully surrendered? Are you completely available? And are you truly willing to be used? If you answered no to any of those questions, then that's a, that's a problem. That's a problem. I, I would... I would challenge you this morning 
that the most, the most profitable thing you can do with your life is to find out what God wants you to do and do it and do every part of it. God may not be calling you to be a missionary around the world, but he might. He might. She, we were kidding in the office the other day, and, and we were talking about Jack and Dorothea Francis at 60-something years old after his business career. Jack surrendered to be a missionary to the deaf, and that's how he spent his life till he died of cancer a number of years ago. God may not call you to be a missionary, but he might. God may not call you to pastor a church, but he might. God may not put it on your heart to speak directly to this certain co-worker that you have, but he might. Is there something you are not willing to do for Jesus? Can God use your life, church? He can. But your life has to be his to use. And God wants a surrendered heart. The Bible says back in, and I think I referred to this verse uh, recently, back in Second Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9, it says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth looking for those people that he can show himself strong in. Isn't, is, do you see the potential there? God is looking for Christians in whom he can do what he did through Paul. Paul was not anything special. He's not, a, he's not a saint any more than you or I are if we know Jesus Christ. And God's power was not wore out or exhausted all on Paul, so he has none to give you or give me. Can God use your life? Yes, he can. It has to be his to use. Answer those questions to yourself tonight. All of us need to be in the place where we say, God, whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, God, I'll do that. If you can get there, and if I can get there, I think we'll be absolutely amazed at what God will do in us. Let's stand together, would you, with your heads bowed. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for saving Saul of Tarsus and turning in him into Paul the apostle and we know that that transformation is all of you. It's your grace. You found in Paul someone who uh, was dirty and violent and wicked and ill-hearted. And you saved him and you justified him. And you cleaned him up so well that he looked like he'd never sinned before you. And then you shook the world with his preaching and, and writing ministry. And Lord, I believe with all my heart, you have a desire to do that with your people today. And we live in a day where people need to see Christians fully surrendered to God and used by you. Lord, help us not to be the determiners of our destiny and the determiners of our life and what we're going to do with what we have. May all of our lives be surrendered with you. Our time, the influence that we have with people, resources that we have or talents that we have, God, may all of those things be fully surrendered to you. And so we can say, uh, yeah, God can use even somebody like me. Lord, you have great grace and you have great power. I pray that you'd work in the hearts of those that are here today who may have been struggling with this. God can't use me because, Lord, your word says differently. 
And we see lives that prove that. So I pray for those folks today that they'd have surrendered hearts to you. I pray this in your name. Amen.